Good afternoon and welcome to the Tortoise Shack Sunday Special. Uh, this week is another jam-packed week with uh, plenty of things to discuss, on many of them quite grim. Uh, and we will try uh, actually put them forward and not, and, and maybe we can frame them a bit more optimistically. Uh, but I'm looking at my guests and I'm not sure how optimistic everybody looks this 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 grim, cold uh, Sunday morning. We are joined by our good friend, a regular contributor, writer, um, activist, and Good Friday Agreement advocate, folks. Um, but Emma, we're not allowed to mention uh, United Ireland, are we? Emma, Emma D'Souza is here. Um, we're also joined by Tomas Ryan from Trinity College. Uh, um, Professor Tomas Ryan, a member of ISAG, and we will be discussing uh, the, the COVID situation. But first, we're joined by Social Democrats TD, Keen O'Callaghan. And Keen, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I know you're under time pressure. I want to come straight to you. 20 months ago, whatever it is, we went into this. Everything changed. Street homelessness nearly went away. Everything every, people were finding themselves. The guys we spoke to, Clean and the Kialig, um, and Neva work on stage at the at at the last live gig before, if live gigs were still possible. Uh, and they talked about how how it changed lives for people who were living in homelessness when the state acted quickly. But now, month after month, we've seen increases in homelessness. And you brought it up this week in the doll. Do you want to just give us a sense of what, where we're going, what the trend is, and what you propose to do to change it? Yeah, well, over the last six months now, we're seeing a steady rise in the number of uh, homeless people living in emergency accommodation, and particularly the numbers of, of children are, are rising quite sharp and quite fast. And it is very much, as you were saying, the, the gains that were made during covid and there was, there was fairly substantial gains. We saw the amount of people in emergency accommodation go down from about 10,000 down to about 8,000. So that was a substantial win. Those gains have, you know, are getting lost now. The lessons from that don't seem to have been learned. I mean, there was a very clear evidence from that that when you make it harder to evict people out of the private rent sector, recognise that where they're living, where they're renting is their home. If you recognise that, you actually, you know, stop the, the flow into homelessness. And while there was temporary measures uh, at the height of the pandemic uh, to give tenants protection, there, there hasn't been those, they haven't been put in place in the in the long term. There are some small improvements coming on the way, but they're not going to be on the, the kind of substance that we need to make it much harder to evict people. You know, if they're, if they're paying rent, if they're in, in line with their rental agreements, that they shouldn't be evicted, as is the norm in other European countries. So, so those gains aren't, and lessons haven't been made. So that's that's on one level, that's what needs to be done. And if we did that, we'd stop the, the flow into homelessness, which then means the work that's been done to get people progressing out of emergency accommodation would, would mean we'd be reducing the amount of people in emergency accommodation. I, I, I accept that, but why aren't we doing it? I mean, we've higher case numbers. We have... Like, I mean, I think Orla Hegarty outlined how we have a higher number of people in ICU beds than we did during the, the what we'd call some of the worst aspects of, of, our, of our of this situation. And we're, we're seeing, Keane, more worryingly, a huge rise, unfortunately, in children again. It's predominantly single parents, families that are, are being forced into out of the private out of the private rental sector into homelessness, into emergency accommodation. And we're not seeing the. The outrage should should not be something that actually causes children lifelong difficulties because that's what happens. These are the, the aces we talk about all the time on this podcast, and we're and we're we're building them up and storing them up. That just doesn't seem to be the traction. 
Yeah, and I, and I have to say my, my own view is COVID or not, it's an, it's an absolute disgrace and the measures we need need to be permanent uh, on it. And it's exactly as you said, it's, it's, we're storing up problems for the future. We're putting children, families through trauma. It's the whole, you know, the, it, obviously for the, like the children themselves, it's massively disruptive to their development. It can be, you know, it, it, in terms of school, it, it can be incredibly unsettling for the children themselves. Obviously very disruptive as well for the, the other children in the class and the, the teachers. And that's another, another element to this. So we should be, it's no question that we should be putting in strong protections for renters as is the case in other countries. So it's not easy to, to evict on a whole myriad of grounds. That would really, really help. I mean, the other thing the government should really be doing is, and, you know, there's general agreement that housing first tendencies for, for people with, you know, who need additional supports really work really well. But they have a very slow roadmap on that. They're saying we need about 2,000 of them. And they're saying, well, we'll get there by 2026, rather than saying, let's get there now. Let's, you know, over the next year or so, get those 2,000 housing first tendencies in place. And also if that was done, because that's the some of the people with the highest support needs would go into those tendencies, that would obviously mean the rest of the support work for people in emergency accommodation would be freed up to some degree to really help people move out of emergency accommodations. That's one of the factors. Look, the, the local connection rule, which you, you would have covered before as well, is, is a factor in this. Uh, doesn't seem to be as big a factor as it might have been about a year ago, but it's still coming into play. There's still people being... Uh, basically thrown out of emergency accommodation because they don't establish a local collection rule and ending up back on the streets. That is happening. Uh, it's a huge barrier to people getting out of emergency accommodation and into housing if they can't establish a local connection rule. There's issues around, you know, at the moment where if a couple of people who uh, are working but are sleeping rough can't get emergency accommodation and they're being told the whole time, well, you need to get your employer to fill out all these forms to prove that you have a local connection in Dublin, which they're doing. The, they're, but that's obviously placing a bit of a strain on their relationship as well with their employers. And then if they end up losing their jobs because their employers are being put through all this, that sets those individuals back significantly. So this whole bureaucratic approach that is still being taken to people uh, because someone somewhere thinks, oh, it's a good idea to implement these sorts of rules uh, is really not not helping the situation either. So there's a there's a lot and, that could be done right now to change this. But that seems to be the problem, Keenan. There's nothing happening right now, and the prospect of anything happening is receding. We see the prices are going to rise. We see supply tightening ever further. So there doesn't seem to be a government plan to to tackle uh, homelessness, particularly of children. Yeah, and I, and I think actually part of the problem is that they. When the numbers went down because the emergency COVID measures, they, they breathed a bit of a sigh of relief, said to themselves, job, job done, pressure off, and then have just watched this increase month by month uh, since. I seem to be uh, mirror, mirroring that in several areas at the moment, I think. But can, but yeah, can, can, yeah, can yeah. I, how do we, like, people are being, pu people are being pushed into homeless out of private rental market. Going to interrupt the podcast for that moment that you don't like, but uh, we have to do. It is us asking you to support this project, the wider platform, all of the voices you hear and the stories you hear. It's been a unbelievable week, a few weeks, actually. Um, and some of the things we've done, they've really made a difference. I've been contacted by Nadim to say that, you know, we're getting more traction on his case and his his leave to stay, leave to remain. 
I've gotten messages from Kira saying that she's been in contact with people in the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive, people from the government itself, and people from the opposition. Those things that we do, um, and we pile on and we, we, we fight for, and we try and help and help amplify, uh, they, they matter, but they don't actually happen unless we can keep the platform viable. And at the moment, we just aren't. We haven't been, we're not, and it's more, it's more difficult for me. It's more difficult to keep this going because there's more bills and I just have no other income stream at this stage. So if, if you're one of the thousands of people listening every day, it just means you have to put your hands in your pocket and help us out. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise It really would make all the difference. Just a couple of quid keeps the, keeps the mics on, keeps us being able to talk to those people. And we'll just go from there. Please, if you can, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Let you go back to the podcast. What are we? What are you proposing in terms of how we're going to give people rent relief? How are we going to? How are we going to actually get rents down? Because this idea of, you know, um, rents linked to inflation didn't work. The rent pressure zones didn't work. Everything that they've thrown at it uh, hasn't worked. So, like, what? 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 What is on your um, to do list? If 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 I gave you the the power to walk in there tomorrow. I know. I mean, straight away, put in a, a complete rent freeze uh, for the entire country. But the the issue around the, the pressure on the rented sector and supply and all that, really, the answer to that substantively, and there, there's a few different things you can do, but really, the answer to that is to get on with building social homes so that people who are in social housing tenancies aren't in the insecure private rent sector. They actually have long-term secure tenancies in social homes, and then that actually would free up a whole range of supply. I mean, we're putting about, as a country, we're putting between HAP and long-term leasing and all the different schemes, we're putting about a billion euro a year into the private rent sector as a state, which is pushing up uh, rents and is making the, you know, is, is constraining the, the supply rather than, we're really following the UK model on that, which is a, which is a disastrous model. But that was always, the, that was always the plan. That was always the plan. In Rebuilding Ireland said we'd, we'd hit about a billion euro a year in... Um, housing and sports, whether it was rent, the, the old uh, rent assistance or the HAP, and they, they preferred HAP because they could then call HAP a social house. They put it in a long-term enhanced leasing and call it as if the state had bought a house, it would include it in rebuilding Ireland as a new build, even though they just took out a long-term lease on, on, on a property. So that was always the plan. How how do we like i mean there's 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 conversations happening around build to rent and this is the solution. Yet build to rent is predicated on they must actually make a return on it, which means that if someone's going to, we're going to rent to that individual, let's say they can afford 1200 the state's going to have to pay the extra 800 850 rather than pay an affordable rent just to cover Keane. We, how do we, we saw it see this week. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm having a bit of a rant now. We'll see this week, Oscar Trainer Road. Again, the most expensive way of delivering the units means that, that Glen Vey are going to have to actually make a return and the state will ultimately be subsidizing it. Yeah, and that's the key point. If we, if we keep, as a country, keep on going for the most expensive ways to deliver housing, it ain't going to work, and it can't work. Uh, if we go for what they've done in countries like Austria, where they actually figure out what's a much more affordable way to deliver housing, it works much, much better. Like, if you look at um, typical average cost rental rents in Vienna, for example, uh, which are commonplace and are open to people and all all incomes you're looking at average monthly rents on an apartment maybe a two bed between let's say 650 euro 750 euro uh, a month and like the 750 euro would be a more recently built scheme with a slightly higher 
higher costs or whatever. And the reason they're able to do that is because their financing costs, most of their financing costs are in at about 1%. That's the kind of interest rates they're paying because they're going down the not-for-profit model. They're going down this, you know, the, effectively the state-guaranteed model. They're not going for the most expensive private developer delivery. And if we don't break that cycle, uh, I don't think we're going to make a huge amount of progress on this. It, it just doesn't make sense to go for the most expensive way of delivering housing. And by all means, you know, that's perfectly fine for people on higher incomes who can afford it and want it or whatever, grand. But if you're looking for housing for most people uh, at affordable rates, you can build it expensively or you can build it affordably. And we're, we're going for the private market, uh, build it expensively model. That's what the government is, is doing. That's, that's exactly what needs to change. Well, the, uh, okay, I, I accept that. And I just think the problem... Again, we have to come back to this just to just to finish on this 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 part of the, the pod. Um, we also need an onus on a public movement to say we don't accept every week, every month that the figures come in and there's another two hundred children homeless. We don't accept these things, and we need to push back on that. Keen and I, whether it was raise the roof, whether it was the co- you know the housing for all coalition, whether it's home for all, home for good, all of these coalitions. I, Tomas is going to be interested because we're. I'm talking about. I want people to be protesting, but I can't. We can't get out and protest because we're in COVID times. Um, but it's so fucking frustrating. The, Excuse my the, language. There's a historical aspect to it as well, Tony. We have always warehoused um, women and children, you know, who are poor. We've always done it. And if you know, we say to ourselves, "Oh, we're different than than what happened with the Magdalene laundries," but we're not. I mean, basically, what they're doing is announcing every month the number of of women who have been institutionalized in poverty, and we're all just nodding along and saying, "No, that's that's perfectly fine." So, yeah, we do all bear a personal responsibility in this. Yeah, um, Keen. Look, I, I I know you have you are under time pressure. Um, if you need to if you need to head on, please do. We're going to continue the conversation here on the pod. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I would love to talk to you for now because it's it's interesting to go to you and and ask you straight off the back. Um, you've just heard that conversation around housing and homelessness and one of the things we need to do. Uh, and you're facing that in in the context of a week where, again, back in the north, you've been told, you know, um. Uh, some guy went up to Belfast, wrote a piece in the Irish Times and said, you know, well, I, I know we should, we got to stop talking about United Ireland. We have to do all of these things. And nothing's getting done in terms of the housing homelessness crisis that you that is facing in the north. There's very little storm. It is a bottleneck. And to make matters worse, then you see a uh, for me now, uh, the Sunday Business Post puts out a, a, a thing this morning saying, oh, well, most people won't accept the changing of the flag. This is all um, just is it, I'm going to say free state nonsense, Emma? Yeah, I have to say, when I saw another poll was coming out last night, I was almost like, oh my God, no more polls. Because there have just been so many of them. And I have promised myself that I'm not writing anything about this poll because I, I need to take a break. Um, but yes, this week was another week uh, in the conversations around possibility of constitutional change. And we had your man who you know, admitted in that piece that they had rarely been uh, up north and then they came up for a night and, you know, were shocked at the fact that uh, Northern Ireland also has vegan baps and coconut lattes. And then we're also appalled walking down the Ormer Road. And for anyone who's been there, uh, you know, that perception of the Ormer Road is baffling. So it was actually quite, um, I guess, almost an insulting piece for those of us in Northern Ireland, the perception that was placed uh, on, on what Belfast is like. 
Um, and then we have this poll coming out that says, um, you know, there's a real disconnect north and south. Now, that doesn't surprise me because you've heard me speak about it before. I've written about it before. There is a disconnect in opinion when it comes to what does constitutional change actually mean? What will it require? And the reality is it will require a substantial compromise on all sides. And I think the fact that there isn't a space for a proper debate and dialogue around what actually this might mean, uh, there's a lot of misperceptions and confusion around what it will take to actually get it across the line. And what we really need to see is an all-out in citizens' assembly where people can come and discuss these things. 100%, isn't it? But how frustrating is it to see a, a poll that says we asked about the flag and the anthem as opposed to we asked about, um, you know, what it would, what, it, what how would it function? Where, you know, what was the, what would our, our school system look like, our education system, removing the church's influence from, from the church, from, schools in the republic how do we how do we accommodate that do, do what what does a functioning um do we do we have a a moving um government you know are they are they going to be in belfast and Dublin? all of those conversations Dundalk, Tony. Yeah. Dundalk. i mean look the thing is is that that would be too that would give the impression that people actually would like these things you know so it's all about how these questions are framed there's an understanding um that there's a bit of i suppose um that the idea of changing the flag and the national anthem, they're kind of contentious topics at the moment because cultural symbols can be very personal for citizens and you're getting kind of ahead of yourself, I suppose, in talking about changing the flag whenever there's other things that can be addressed. And really the idea of a constitutional change would be a system that could break the mold of the systemic policy failures that have continued in both jurisdictions, but nobody's really talking about that because that would seem like that might be too good a thing. It's, it's positive language. If they were to pull and say, would you support a United Ireland if it was an all Ireland healthcare system? Well, we've seen one or two questions like that, and there's overwhelming support north and south. Oh, yes, that would be great. Uh, you know, but questions around what about an, an education system that was removing religious uh, education or removing religious studies from being mandatory? That's not been asked of the public, and you might find there's quite a bit of support for that. And other issues around addressing systemic policy issues around housing, again, not being part of this conversation. So it's really quite a narrow conversation that's happening in terms of mainstream media. And a lot of the polling is trying to frame it in a way that makes it seem quite controversial or contentious instead of looking at ways to see what the wider uh, public opinion is on some of these other topics. There's also the element of history, Emma, which has been to the fore recently where uh, the British authorities are going to write their own history of the Northern Ireland Troubles. That's also a contentious point, really and truly. Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, we <laughs> there was quite a lot of shock, I suppose, from historians uh, that this was what they were going to try and put forward this idea of an official uh, British government sanctioned history of the troubles. I mean, it's just another in a long line of um, ideas from the British government that just are completely off the left field and are in inconsistent with really the uh, you know the principles of the Good Friday Agreement around building reconciliation. You know, so it's just one in the latest. Uh, yeah, we, 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 we did two podcasts on that. We, one with um, Gareth Mulvena, who's written about the Troubles, and he's written the bo books on the Tartan Gangs. And we, we had Tony Doherty, who's obviously, his father was killed on Bloody Sunday, and he's the chairperson of the, 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 the Free Dairy Museum. But And we got those perspectives. But what was both interesting is both agreed that it was like, yeah, all this nonsense going on and none of this conversation around, look, people saying we're abandoning the Good Friday Agreement but we never implemented it, you know? It's just it's just insanity over and over. Can I ask you one thing? And I, I hate, I know it's the drum I keep beating. Why the hell do we have to keep putting up with, um, 
the coverage in in the south as in how much this is going to cost us um uh, because there's this figure of, of like 15 billion that that's you know the subvention from the uk and no one points out you know what's actually what's actually the, the reality of that is well we know the eu is going to be on board we know that we know the uk will, will maintain on board and we know the us will be on board it must be frustrating to sit there and hear that discussed and if I'm going to use a, a Leo Varadkar term, we discussed the North as if you were un- unproductive uh, economic units. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big issue in terms of the perception uh, of Northern Ireland in mainstream media. And I have been quite frustrated, I suppose, not just in how um, these topics are being addressed in mainstream media, but also by the con- continued platforming of quite extremist views in Northern Ireland. So people who are completely against the Good Friday Agreement or who advocate for its removal are being put out there like they somehow represent huge swathes of Northern Ireland, when in reality, this place is, uh, you know, substantially changed over the last two decades. And the Good Friday Agreement, whilst never fully implemented, whilst the vast majority of human rights protections were never put into practice, people in Northern Ireland have embedded for themselves the meaning of true reconciliation. And that is so often abandoned or not represented in mainstream media. So it is a point of continued frustration. uh, And I'm grateful that every now and again, I get to put that frustration into words, into the Irish Times, to uh, try to put forward an alternative perception of Northern Ireland. Is there much disappointment in Northern Ireland that the bridge to Scotland isn't going to go ahead? Uh, Well, I think think there's much... uh, I can't. I couldn't even really think of the term. We had a good laugh about the bridge to Scotland. Let's be fair; it was the most ridiculous idea that was ever floated. And as someone who lives in Fermanagh, like, come on, can we please just have trains in Fermanagh uh, instead of talking about these imaginary bridges between Scotland and Northern Ireland? Oh, Island, listen! In the week where we all discovered Peppa Pig World, we should all just be, we, we all have to understand this is where it goes. Emma, we're going to move on. We are joined by Ibrahim Halawa. Uh, my, my, my pal is here. Um, Ibrahim, we'll come to you in a minute, but I want to talk to Tomas Ryan now, if that's okay. Tomas, oh my God. Uh, everything is, are, are you going to do, you should do a tour now, a Zoom tour, where you go around to, to the journalists who have attacked you for the last 20 months and just do a, I told you so tour. <laughs> you know, no, I did tell you so. I, I, and it's the worst, it's the worst time to be right, though. I, I don't think anyone wants to take um and I told you so attitude. Um, I think many, many people have been describing the situation where we find ourselves in now as being almost uh inevitable uh for a long time with how not just how Ireland but how the world has been managing this particular pandemic. Um an awful lot's happened in the past week. Um I think one issue is schools, children in Ireland, and there's the the wave we're having, you call it a fourth wave or a fifth wave in general in the Republic of Ireland, uh, and how that's going to be managed, how it's not being managed, and of course, the Omicron variant and, and how to manage that. Um, I think it's, it's very clear that we need a complete uh, reorientation for how we're, how we're dealing with the pandemic in Ireland. Um, and I think that on the subject of journalism, I'm hearing very much in the past two days a lot of a lot of meta opinions about uh, COVID, which ha- often happens when we don't have enough data yet, and we don't have enough data on Omicron yet. Uh, so we're talking about how we're talking about it, um, and everyone's saying, "Oh, don't panic too much. Oh no, it's going to be fine. We'll wait and see." Um, I, I don't remember a time in the pandemic where where Ireland has actually panicked in any respect about COVID. 
uh, what we what we have is very rigorous discussions in mainstream media in a very narrow window of acceptable opinion, which of course is a very old uh, technique uh, to allow people to, to you know vent frustration it's, it's, in it's public, pretty, it's but pretty, not it's, actually it's, to deal with the real issue. It's very Fox News. We'll get this guy on from this side and get this guy on this side, but then we'll frame the question differently. That so so you one person starts as the villain, and usually in the piece you started as the villain because you advocated for an elimination strategy, and uh, you know, but we didn't even get to the stage where we did mitigation. Now we're facing a new variant. It's already in the UK, which unfortunately means it's probably prevalent in a lot of places. And I know Martin, you wanted to make the point about um about it's it's not the South African variant. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to say that, Thomas, that it's not actually a South African variant, even though it's had that moniker put on it. It's originally, we think it originated in Botswana, um, but of course there's no point in, in linking this to particular, to particular countries. The Delta variant originated in India, the B117 alpha variant originated in England. This one seems to be appearing throughout Europe right now. I, it does seem to me Again, without without having to to be panicked about this, without having to be alarmist, or without having to catastrophize things, I don't even know what those words mean, uh, because different people mean different things with them. But um, we we need to, in my opinion, do everything we can for the next few weeks to prevent this from being a problem. Israel has banned all travel into yeah. Israel. Um, other countries like the UK are putting in stronger PCR test requirements. Everyone going into the UK needs to have a test a day later and is expected to self-isolate for a day uh, after arriving. That's that's very um, that's a huge step up for the UK based on their existing standard of COVID restrictions. Unfortunately, that doesn't apply to the Republic of Ireland, uh, which Simon Coveney was welcoming this, this morning, which shows that we still have this, we still haven't learned, we still have a a kind of a duplicity for how we think about managing COVID. About Omicron itself, we'll know an awful lot in a few weeks' time. Um, I, I think that there's a couple of points that are worth worth pointing out about this particular variant. Um, one is that it's it looks like it's a game changer, but we don't have enough data yet. It is entirely possible that this is a false alarm. Um, it's also possible that this variant might have strong vaccine efficacy, uh, excuse me, strong resistance to, to, to vaccination, um, and also might have stronger clinical symptoms, although we have no information on that yet. But if it's not more transmissible than Delta, then you know maybe it, 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 it's not going to be a game changer effectively because it's not going to take over. But the reason that uh, people are worried about it is for, for two broad pieces of information. One is the genetic structure of the virus. This virus has a lot of mutations in it, uh, more than other variants that we've seen. And, these, and, and those mutations imply, number one, vaccine resistance, and number two, heightened transmissibility. Uh, and we know this based on where mutations have had effects in the past and other variants, and also based on computational modeling studies. So there's very good reason to think that this, this variant will have consequences for both transmissibility uh, and vaccine evasion, but that's not been shown yet. The other reason is the local epidemiology, uh, particularly in the region of South Africa, where this became prevalent. It rapidly grew in that area in, in a way that is alarming, 
but could be due to local artifacts that were happening at the time, spread amongst university students, other things that we need to work out. So we don't know, and we need to we need to learn more about this. But what's notable is the sociology of how scientists have been talking about this, because if you remember the Delta variant, it took uh, it took control in India first, and it took weeks before scientists were publicly admitting this is a real problem. It, yes, is it more transmissible? It seems to be more transmissible. Yeah, weeks later, arguably over a month later, it's definitely more transmissible. With this variant, with Omicron, it took a couple of days yeah. for even the most, you know, centrist scientists. And by, I don't like using the term centrist when it comes to scientific interpretation, because that's the spectrum where the right-wing scientists were herd immunity and the left-wing scientists were zero COVID. And the centrist scientists were the ones for wait and see. Maybe we'll, maybe things will be okay. We shouldn't worry too much. Let's have some optimism. And of course, it's meaningless scientifically. Uh, because science doesn't care about our optimism. The virus right. doesn't care about our optimism. But my I point did. is... I, I, I read... I, I, I just want to say, someone said, uh, opium is now the opium of the yes. masses. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that has been a huge problem with our conversation about COVID in general, where the media give more credibility to people who are optimistic. Uh, I don't think it's... And I'm called pessimistic. I don't think it's pessimistic to say a car is coming down the street. Maybe we should step out of the way. Uh I think that it's 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 an optimistic thing to do to take control of your situation. But my but my point would just be that the more centrist voices around the world immediately became very uh irked by Omicron. So everyone's in agreement that this is potentially very dangerous. We don't know how much. Uh I think it's at least going to be probably it's going to be at least a game changer in the way that Delta was a game changer. Well, the only um, the only way, but 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 again, I, there's still people saying like Pfizer, we're going to have a, a vaccine in a hundred days, and no one's saying, well, <laughs> what else is 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 been is is brewing elsewhere? Where does a hundred this- days? Yeah, hundred days, and then and then we have to. Work. How are we going to do the clinical trials? They said they'll be expedited. FDA and EMA will expedite those. Fine. Then there's production, distribution. So yes, this vaccine, second generation vaccines, will be faster than the first one. So instead of a year and a half, maybe it takes nine months before you get it into your arm. Realistically, someone my age, I don't know. I'm in my thirties, so uh, it's oh that, wait, wait, the shame was forty year olds. Wait, the shame was forty year olds. That that's a good thing. The, the beautiful thing about the mRNA vaccines is you can you can re-engineer them very quickly, and the antivirals drugs that we'll be able to use next year, they don't care what variant you have. Um, so. There are many things we're still going to be able to do about this, um, but is it setting us back to March 2020? There's no reason to think that yet, but that is possible. Uh, it is possible that this variant would essentially put us back that far. Hopefully it doesn't. There's no reason and, to think and, it will, but it is before, on the table. And before we saw Delta, as you said, there was the UK variant that came out of the UK. Exactly. So there is always the possibility that something will piggyback very quickly on the back of this one. Always that possibility. Can we stop being so negative, Martin? We need we need opium. Opium. Um, well, I, I think, you know, from Thomas's point of view, we, we live in an era where we have the money to mitigate. We have the science to to eradicate. But what we lack is the po- uh, the politics to do it. I think that's... Would that be a fair summation, Thomas? I mean, I, I think, I think so. I think a large part of this is simply we have lacked um, the will to make difficult decisions for our future selves. 
Um, and the mechanisms that we have currently in politics are too short-termism, uh, revolve around short-termism. And in the case of Ireland, uh, we have a sort of understanding between the government, the opposition parties, and the people really running the country, who are the civil servants, that they don't really want to, to do anything that's going to be organizationally difficult for them or that yeah. might fail. And we see that um, we see that and we see that in all aspects, Thomas. And I, I I'm conscious of time and I will come back to you in, the, in a minute. But I would like to before we do, I'd like to ask Emma if that's okay. You're you're listening to this conversation and you're 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 effectively looking at it from that prism of high case numbers in NI, high death rate, unfortunately, tragically and very sadly. Is what's the how is the situation there like i mean because we 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 have this kind of it's it's like a false lockdown everything is open but please don't go to it you know it's it's a bit much and how how are things just a couple of hundred miles from where i'm sitting here i mean they're very different uh up here in the north in terms of uh, vaccine uptake in terms of regulations and in terms of adherence to the policies as well i mean mask wearing has never not been mandatory uh, since it came in in Northern Ireland, but the adherence to mask wearing is absolutely atrocious in, in many spaces here in the North. There really has just been a, a down tick in people following the guidelines. Now, Stormont has made the decision to bring in the um, the vaccine passports, though not, not officially a vaccine passport because you can't just give a negative lateral flow test. And they, they went back a little bit on it now and have said it's only for licensed venues. But that is a substantial step forward into the right direction, a little late, but still a a substantial step forward. Um, And we did see this week a big um, rise in vaccines as a result, because people will now have to get them in order to go to the pub. So there is really a benefit to this kind of system in one way, uh, although there there are other concerns around around having a vaccine passport for the for admission into certain venues. So it's kind of a mixed bag in the North that it is not as uh, good a picture as it is across the border. And we're heading into Christmas and we have this new variant. So a lot to be quite uh, apprehensive about. Oh, right. On that on that cheery note, I'm going to go to something even um, less cheery. Ibrahim, um, my friend, uh, we were standing in the freezing cold. Actually, I will tell the story. So this idiot shows up, uh, me, uh, in this jumper that I'm wearing now. Uh, and uh, it was bitter cold. And uh, I, I said to him, I said, I'm freezing. And he says to me, do you want to lend him a jacket? And he, <laughs> I don't know why you meant it. But anyway, we were at a Black Lives Matter rally in DCU. Um, there's been a bit of blowback. There's been a reaction from the individual, the lecturer, Mark Humphreys himself. Um, but but can you just, you, you gave a four minute speech. I posted a bit of it on social media, but this was somebody who has gone at you for years, pal. And you came across and you did that. Would you give the listeners the benefit of just some of the things you spoke about in the in the context of the rally and why it matters, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, first of all, staying on the point, the ABC, when you're coming to a protest, always bring a jacket. That's 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 protest rules. Um, but no, uh, in regards to, to this guy, like I said, I, I don't want to give him the benefit of even mentioning his name. Um, he has been at me for, for many years and I haven't gave it the, the slightest bit of attention, never tweeted about it, never commented about it, never even directed any attention to it whatsoever. Um, you know, people are entitled to difference of their political opinion, but 
it, it matters when that political opinion um, turns into hate speech and it turns into discrimination. Um, and, you know, th this is where the issue arises that we need to t tackle that when someone of such, you know, uh, position within a college or a university is given a platform um, to discuss that. Now, a lot of people are saying that he is a lecturer in computing and we shouldn't bring his politics into, into his lecturing. Uh, there's many points to discuss there. And, I, and of course, I said it, it's very hard to differentiate the two. You can't just leave your brain at home when you're when you're coming uh, into university as a lecturer and being like, OK, I'm not going to judge this student because of his color uh, or I'm not going to judge this uh, student because of his religious beliefs or, or his support for Palestine or whatever. Um, but the thing is, we need to look at it from the student's perspective. We're looking at it from the lecturer's perspective. When we look at it from the student's perspective, we will see that many students will perhaps know that this lecturer, because of his views that he advocates online, that they will fear to pick, take uh, such a subject within the university. And that fear within itself is not, a, 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 you know, it's not an inclusive and it's not a safe environment. If I am fearing to take a lecturer's class just because I know that outside of his college, he has some views. Uh, it definitely is an impact to the student life. Um, but also we need to look at it. And I'm sorry, and let's be let's be straight up honest about this. If, if we had some Muslim extremist who um, who was on, who was a lecturer and given some extremism views outside of it, and he said, look, my views are different uh, and the tables turned here. Definitely, definitely he will be gone. Um, it, it's it's just changing that kind of perspective. But, um, you know, I had to uh, thank Bashir as well as, as a lecturer. I, Bashir Atakoya um, stood up and gave a speech, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it was very crucial for Bashir as a lecturer to give us his perspective that it's very hard to... Um, to differentiate between you know your your ideas and and your lecturing they, they will have to interlink at some point um but if we allow it for this lecturer then you know if if he's teaching politics if he's teaching um law if he's teaching other subjects that will definitely have an effect on his views or his views will have an effect on such then where do we draw the line where do we say that, that it's enough for this lecture or it's enough for this lecture or no, he keeps it outside of college, but he gets it inside of college with him. It's it's going to be hard to draw that fine line. Martin, I know you want to come in, but I want to make a point that that, that was made repeatedly um, as we spoke to people that even the idea, he said he leaves his politics outside the door. And I think Bashir framed it brilliantly that that, that, that you can't do that. You bring your you bring your your preconceptions of who you are and preconceptions of who other people are in wherever you go you carry that baggage and i thought i thought he spoke very well on it and we will hope to talk to bashir we, we were hoping to talk to bashir uh, now but unfortunately yeah and when we get him we, we, we will we will get him ibrahim but, but we but martin sorry you wanted to come in yeah abraham we spoke to students during the week and they told us that there is a stricter social media policy for students than there is for lecturers and um, would it help if that anomaly was addressed that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you know, students are always held accountable for such comments they state online, for such social media posts, if 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 it, if it, if it has come to the light. You know, there's, there is many controversy about students and, and, and their opinion just because of the social standards or the class or the uh, you know, the prestige of the co of, of the university or the college. But but now it's like, I'm sorry, we have a lecturer who's blindly um, taking pictures with rocket launchers with the with the uh, Israeli defense uh, forces 
and, and he posts it online and, and he's proud of it. it. That's like having a lecture or posting, you know, standing beside an ISIS flag. To, to me, that's the same. We we know that there's you know, been a lot of innocent killing, killings within within uh, the the. the the, the apartheid that's have been happening with uh, on Gaza, and there is many political issues there that that need to be addressed as uh, as uh, as a university. That you can't you can't be you can't be posting such stuff online, uh, for, and, and and if if he's given that platform to do so, other lecturers will come and and, and do the same thing. And, and and again, we're not talking about uh, inhibiting someone's freedom of speech. We're saying not there are con- there I, just are consequences to the and stuff I was you say. Get- I was going to get to that point, and I'm sorry. Let, and again, let me be honest with this, uh, and I have to, and I have to address it honestly with with 100. Like, um, if you go onto this guy's Twitter page, right, and you see every tweet that he has retweeted about his political or freedom of speech, and I don't, and I, and I've, I, I was in prison for freedom of speech, so I know how it is and how important and how crucial it is to have it and not allow you know each person to interfere with with, with such topic, but. Uh, let me ask a question uh, from our guest speakers and, and as well as as Tony and Martin. When have you ever been told go back to your country? Um, Emma, have you never, ever never, never. Well, I mean, yes, I have been told to uh, if I want to be Irish, then I can go across the border and live in Donegal. Yeah, and, and so so, th- so no, go ahead, go ahead, Ibrahim. That's. That- yeah, so I was going to get to the point. So I'm kind of like definitely Emma. That that that's horrible, and no one has to go through that. And and I've went through it, a bit, being born and and raised in Ireland. And and look, like Martin and Tony, we we were both raised and born born in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, but the perspectives will always never look at us the same. They our view people will never look at us the same. And that is very crucial when addressing such issues. To put that in mind, if you go to his tweets and see all the tweets that he retweeted, except for one that I've come across, um, which some a student of his, I think, was of Indian background, all the people who have given their opinion to say that this is freedom of speech and it shouldn't interfere with his works were white. Mm. And 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 I, I want to just, just I know we're, we're, we're going over time, but I don't really care for this moment because I want to frame this. You were in prison in Egypt for uh, for for issues that had to be ultimately thrown out. And, and you know, you suffered greatly your mental health suffered everything and then you came back and this guy was advocating as if you were an active member of the muslim brotherhood and he was he was perpetrating myths about about you i mean i, I remember we stood in starbucks when you got back and it was like a people looking at this big and i couldn't believe you had so little hate in your heart because i had more hate in my heart for the people who did that to you than you did yeah. so so I, I, don't I don't hate, hate I don't I don't hate anyone and I and I just have to make that clear that I don't hate anyone uh, whatsoever I I understand that people have to held account be held accountable for their actions and that that's of crucial importance <clears throat> excuse me but this guy has I think around six six blogs if I'm if I'm not mistaken about my you know personal life about people who have stood up with me he has uh you know he has he kind of has a, a blog about the leftists who support ibrahim halawa as well and, and he has like a, a bunch of people in there and he has ruri as well uh, uh, in it um so so he has a good number of people which is very disappointing um to see to see that his opinion 
um, that he so calls it is is allowed and it's allowed to impact people's uh, mental health. And I said, as I said, as students' perspectives as well, it impacts students. For someone like me who was accepted in DCU, but I refused it because I didn't want to be walking across campus one day and then being face to face with this guy. Um, and I don't have to be in that position. And no student ever has to be in that position of fear where they just don't want to be in that position to speak to him at all. You're muted. Yeah, sorry, Tomas, can I ask you a question? I know this is not your area of expertise, but you're in Trinity and you, you see these things. You are a lecturer, you're a professor, and you and you hear these conversations. And I just, I don't know if you know much of Ibrahim's background, but as you can tell from the man, there's no hate in his heart. To, to see that sort of stuff and, and to, to have to put up with it, as, as a university lecturer, you must understand that that there there has to be some sort of way that we we can walk a, a line between educating, debating robustly. You know, you're talking you're talking in in terms of say science. If we can put it into your genre, you have to have an, a debate that can be robust without being to the point where it's actually it's actually cruel and and ex excludes other people. I think this is a very very nuanced um, issue, and that doesn't mean that it's a, a gray messy area where where we can have confused conversations about it in the media, which is what normally happens, not on this format. If you look at Trinity as an institution, we are very old um, and lo a lot older than the Republic of Ireland. And there's always been uh, a cultural tension in this country uh, with respect to many things from women's rights, contraception, homosexuality, um, that I'm quite proud to be a part of an institution that was quite iconoclastic on all of these things. And there's something about Trinity in particular that, that embodies a kind of attention. I don't know, is it because historically being a Protestant institution in a Catholic country to being a secular institution in a religious country, there's many, many different ways of, of looking at that. Um, Trinity has employed lecturers that were uh, active members of the IRA because they were good at what they knew. And we, you know, we were there for purposes of research and teaching. And the first thing any academic has to be able to do is to show competency in, in research and teaching. That's the job. But then there is the other side of it, which is the civic role of the university. So if you take an extreme view, um, I would not tolerate a biochemistry professor who was openly sexist in their views, in their remarks, or in their behavior, even if that didn't come into the classroom or the lecture theater, it would still be a major problem uh, for students there. It would be a problem culturally. Uh, maybe not so much 100 years ago, but it would be a problem. I'm not saying it shouldn't have been a problem 100 years ago, but, but it would be more of a problem today and it should be more of a problem today. And we have different uh, ways of dealing with that. I mean, the most is kind of the most obvious is just implicit cultural peer pressure. That's not acceptable. Don't do that. Or you will get less respect from your colleagues. You will get less respect from your students. It's, it's not going. And, and that goes a long way. Then you end up, you, then you end up with these, it's sooner or later with the situation, like what happened at DCO. And the, the university, I have to say, took what was a relatively cowardly position 
because they tweeted in a way that was to distance themselves from the act, but in a way that it had no relevance to even having to comment on it, which I think was false. I think the university should have taken a much more proactive uh, comment, should, should have commented more proactively on it. I think the university should have um, taken a position of some kind of moral leadership to support its students and to support members of the wider community who've been affected by the comments of this person. Um, and I think that was a failure. And the, the main reason these situations happen is when institutions show leader, fail to show leadership or do anything proactive about these things. Now, on the other side of that, however, was there something technically that the university should do to reprimand that individual? And that's where you get into murkier territory, when it isn't immediately in their classroom or dealing with their colleagues directly. Um, and to be honest, I also get worried that we give too much oxygen to these characters who I think are also importing cultural wars from other countries that are really in a different tone here. I think this happens an awful lot with the United States. So when I hear, when I get told that I've in, you know, that I'm supporting woke culture, that I'm too much of a snowflake, and all these kind of words. That's not a thing in Ireland, okay? That you have to go and live in the United States, see what's happening there. It's a completely different social narrative. It's a completely different conflict. And racism in the United States is endemic. It, I've, I've lived in the United States for many years. It is a huge problem. I don't think it's a problem that most Irish people really have a concept of. Um, it, is, it is far more ingrained institutionally and culturally in the way the United States is set up than one could really imagine from living in London or Dublin. And I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist in Ireland and England, obviously it does, but it's institutionalized in so many ways uh, in the United States, and that's what it was, the Black it, Lives it was, Matter. It was, it was in the birth of it was in the birth of the the United States. It was it was literally written into the you, birth. You, you know, just have to look at the for profit prison industry. Imagine a imagine a, imagine a prison industry run by Michael O'Leary, and having essentially no limits on how much it can expand. the The amount of incarcerated people in the United States. Uh, if, if you were to go through the numbers with most Europeans, they would it's not believe per, you. Per, per head of population, it's the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, Ibrahim, just before we just before we, we finish this point, I just want to ask you: um, Have you had much reaction to just just coming out and 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 to have that conversation? Because I know you're a law student now. You're in UCD. You're making your way in the world, and. You know, we're all proud of you, big man, but like it's got to be hard to, to continually have to stand up and speak about something that happened to you as a teenager. You were a kid, mate. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. that Like it, it is triggering. But, um, you know, I've been through a lot and I think you yourself as well and Martin can can remember the first time you seen me um, to now. I, I've matured a lot and there was a lot that I've learned and, and I've come a far, a far way um, since then. But I've put up with a lot of abuse from from this guy, mental abuse. This guy, like I said, he had six blogs. When when, when I first came out, he said, um, before I came out, he kept calling me a Muslim Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood, Muslim Brotherhood, and associating my family with with a lot of you know uh, weird views that he had in his own mind. Um, 
but when I came out on the Late Late Show and I said, listen, I'm my own self. I don't support um, the Muslim Brotherhood. I support, you know, a, a democratic state and, and democracy. Uh, and that's how the state should follow, uh, you know, if they don't want some guys to use the ballot box and not kill people. And he still found some, you know, uh, roundabout of views to come back at me and say that this is this is what uh, Ibrahim believes. But in the end, um, I still never gave him the oxygen, like um, like Dr. Thomas was saying. And it was very important to, to acknowledge that to not give someone uh, that oxygen. But I think there ne- we need to draw a line somewhere. And I've I've matured enough and I've grown enough to to know that this line has to be put now and this guy should not be given any further airtime um, so other students wouldn't have to suffer. And of course, there's a lot of stake when I come out and speak about such issues, of course, as as being in UCD, but I I have to thank UCD for allowing me to, you know, to express my views and um, express my freedom of expression uh, when it comes to such topics of like racism and Islamophobia. Um, but like I said, it, it must be drawn a line uh, at this at this moment um, towards this guy. Ibrahim, I really appreciate you joining us today. We we keep in touch, pal. We 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 keep the fight going, and, and we it it it's really great. Oh, thanks for doing this. Um, I I do want to mention one thing just very briefly. We had a podcast during the week with um. With Hannah McCarthy, who's an Irish journalist, as you've probably heard from the podcast before, she generally lives in Lebanon, but she just because Lebanon wasn't difficult enough, she went to Afghanistan um, and she's in Afghanistan at the moment. Uh, and 23 million people are in food insecurity. Uh, and I do think she says it's the humanitarian crisis that's on the way is like something, nothing we may have seen before. Uh, people talk about climate refugees, food refugees, nothing kills like hunger. Um, and it really, really concerns me. And it concerns me that it's not getting any attention, that these people are not able. There was a child who got sick because she was being breastfe- breastfed by the mother who wasn't getting enough nutrition in one in just one example. And if this is where we're going, we really need to cop ourselves on. I, uh, um, this is just something that I, I really think not, is not getting enough attention. We will come back to it. And um, and Hannah was brilliant in her reporting. Follow her online. You'll find the podcast on the, on the feed. But she's um, but yeah, it's 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 something that has me really worried. And we have a good few things coming up this coming week as well, Tony. We have podcasts coming out from uh, one with with ourselves and Mick Clifford, and and we have a couple of others lined up for the week. Guess who's back? Guess who's back on Tuesday? Uh, PJ Drudy is back. Lovely. I haven't spoken to PJ in ages. PJ is a great person. Uh, also, there's going to be, uh, and I'm, I'm going to plug the Irish Examiner. There's going to be a bit in the Irish Examiner tomorrow. So you, you must be getting a, a mention, are you? Ha- have a look uh, and have a read, and I'll be having a bit of a discussion online <laughs> uh, about it. Emma, have you anything coming out? We're on mute. Good. Uh, yeah, I've got a piece coming out on um, social media abuse uh, as a threat to democracy and female participation. Um, and you'll also be hearing me this week uh, staking my flag in the conversation around United Ireland once again, because I'll be speaking at an Ireland's Future event in Armagh on Wednesday. Okay, very good. Um, uh, they see, I keep seeing these uh, these these shared island and these United Ireland events, and I keep wondering why I'm not why I'm not the chairperson. It just drives me mad. <laughs> Thomas, anything coming up during the week for you, or are you going to be just crunching numbers pretty much all week? I think uh, we're going to be paying a lot of attention to what we learn about Omicron uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, what can we learn about it? We will be able to see. Uh, from lab-based studies that will be done very quickly, whether it does seem to have the potential for antibody uh, evasion, that doesn't necessarily translate to vaccine resistance, but it but it can. 
we'll also see more and more reports about how many people who are infected or hospitalized with Omicron were vaccinated versus unvaccinated. It's going to tell us a lot. Hopefully we're going to learn uh, something about any clinical effects um, of Omicron. Um, and crucially, whether it does seem to have a higher OR number than Delta or not. Uh, I think all eyes will be on those those four different areas. Um, I think, I but right I spend most of my time doing neuroscience and I'm interested in how memories are stored in the brain. So that's principally what I'll be doing this week. Uh, the, 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 actually, you know, can you, if you're, if you, if you work it out, can you remind Martin to get up in time for the podcast? <laughs> <and we> find, <laughs> that would be very helpful. <laughs> Look, we're going to leave it there. We've gone well over time. We've had a fabulous conversation. I want to thank Keno Callahan for joining us earlier for the SOC Dems and the conversation around housing. Emma, as always, it's a pleasure. You, you, I think you're now officially the, the most appearances on the tortoise shack of any of any guests. You're, you're basically one. You're, you're one of the crew, as you know. And Tomas, thank you again. And we really do, we really do love the fact that you you said no one wants to do. I told you so. But Tomas, you kind of should be saying I told you so at this stage. Um, and Ibrahim, my, my my pal, we will talk very soon, guys. We let you get on with your Sunday. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Share, let like, tell people about it. That's the only way this gets discovered. It's it's. This is the most listened to podcast we do every week. And we have thousands of listeners. And yet the Sunday show always trumps them all. So it, it's it's always some for some reason we get away with it. I don't know. It's nothing to do with Martin anyway. We'll talk to you all very soon. Take care. Bye bye.